Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Good morning. I'm going to be reading from John 11, verses 1 to 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters said to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, And and there's not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that. He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She's turned to him. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were in the house consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, 
If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also keep the man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they might believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So after the service, Gail is going to read the phone book, and we're just all going to love it. Thank you so much for reading that lengthy text. The reason it's so lengthy is because we had a snow day, and this is what we call Makeup Sunday, where uh, we were going to do the Lazarus story in two parts, and we're going to do it in one. I've given myself a goal of uh, 44 verses in 44 minutes. Let's start the clock. Let's give that a try. We're going to grab the big rocks in this text and make sure that we're focusing on what the text itself is focusing on. But before we do that, I want to just mention a couple of things going on in the life of the church. We just recently had our uh, AGM, and uh, it was a really incredible time of, of hearing stories of, of God's grace to us, testimonies of, of how he worked through uh, ministry in the church this past year in many different areas. And and it was really good to hear our, our lead team led and led well. And I think the picture to me that was really encouraging is as we talked about our mission of existing to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow him, which is really being the kind of disciples who make other disciples. And, and we, we got to hear that story after story of that's going on here. And, and that's, a, that's a testimony of the... Um, the servants of Christ in this church who long to make Jesus known and of God's great goodness to us that he is working to accomplish the, the mission we're on together. And my favorite part was looking out. Uh, I peeked. I opened my eyes during the prayer time at the end. And what I saw was an AGM end in a way that AGMs in a lot of churches don't end. And that was that... Um, Ernie, our moderator, had asked everyone to break into small groups and just give themselves to prayer, to praising God for what he's done, and pressing, asking, praying to God to do even greater things this year, and just small groups of people throughout the room, praying together, praising God together, just a sign of a really healthy church, a sign of a church that really loves Jesus, and I was really um, 
encouraged by that. I want you to be encouraged as well. Also, as we press forward this year, we're in that uh, really fun, exciting stage of eldership nominations. Yes, exactly. It's uh, usually about two of you engage in that process by <laughs> nominating. It's, it's very uh, limited in, in the amount of uh, engagement we typically have with it. Here's how it works. There's another week uh, we're kind of opening for this elder nomination time. We're, we have a present lead team moving towards the eldership model, and we have elder nomination forms at the Welcome Center. So what you can do is you can read First Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 and read about the qualifications of an elder, and then pray and ask the question, Lord, who is it that I've observed amongst the congregation that could potentially fill this role? loves Jesus, longs to see that their own church love Jesus, has an ability to teach from the Bible, to defend doctrine and to teach doctrine. Who, who among us, Lord, who have I observed? Who could I nominate? And you do that and you fill it in by next week. We greatly appreciate that. From there, there's what's called a discernment team. There has been for our lead team. There will continue to be for our elders team. A discernment team made up of the lead pastor, great guy, a member of our lead team, and a member of our congregation. And these men and women made up of, uh, making up that group will be a part of discerning and interviewing those who are nominated uh, for eldership and bring those names that they think would make good elders in this place to the lead team who will also then affirm those names. And if those names don't get caught up there and stopped there at the lead team, they'll be presented before, back before you. So this is now again more congregational input and we will put those names before you over the course of two weeks and say, if there is a reason why this person and this person and this person shouldn't be elders, please let us know. It's much like at the wedding when the pastor says, if there's a reason why these two shouldn't be married, like, talk now or forever hold your peace. And so we'll put those names in front of you. We want to hear. We want to hear the dirt on the potential elders. We really do. That, this, that would be the appropriate time to come and, and give us the dirt. could get interesting. It usually doesn't. It's usually quite tame. And, uh, and at that point, um, we will then uh, have, as a congregation, through this process, add, be adding to um, the leadership here that long to serve as under-shepherds of Jesus, serving this place in that way. So I invite you into that process. There's a week to go in it. We want to be the kind of church that raises up leaders but doesn't just do that. Be the kind of church that raises up people in every gifting, in every sphere, that every single person would be utilizing the gifts that God has given them to serve the church and the community for Jesus' sake. And so invite you along in that. Now, you've already got your Bibles open to John 11, if you have them. We heard it read, and we're going to pick up the text. Um, we often, if you've been around church long, long while, you hear the Lazarus story and go, oh, I know this one. But I want us to have kind of fresh eyes again this morning because what we observe in this text is absolutely amazing. It's incredible. It's incredible and mind-blowing what Jesus does. He's given sight to blind people. He's helped cripple people walk. And now he's taking a dead man and he's making him alive. And that is very good news for you and me. What happens in this story with Lazarus in John chapter 11 is really, really good news for you and me. And that's going to begin to, to show itself as we uh, unpack this text. I'm just going to pick it up in verse 3 where it says, So the sisters, this is Mary and Martha. There are a few stories about them in the scriptures. This is one of them. 
um, sent to him, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. What a great position Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were in. They were like friends of Jesus. Jesus loved to hang out at their house. They were close. And Jesus really loved Lazarus. They were buddies. And and his sisters say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, you follow the story, and Lazarus does die. So what does Jesus mean? It won't lead to death. Was he wrong? Here's what Jesus means. Here's an alternate translation. This sickness is not about death, but about the glory of God. This story isn't even really about death. It's about the glory of God. Death isn't the end of the story. Death isn't even the point of the story. What's the point of the story? God's glory. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. God can do something we can't. He's amazing. He should get glory. But first, I want to walk us through the suffering that Mary and Martha must have been feeling, the suffering that Lazarus would have gone through. So first, in your outline, I want you to see that suffering is never futile. We think it is. In the midst of it, we rarely understand the why. But this Lazarus story shares a few of the reasons why with us. See, when we're in the scenario, even when we're past the scenario of suffering and trials, we often look and go like, I do not get why that happened. But the stories in the Bible give us the kind of vantage point from God that actually fill in all the gaps and we go, oh, I get it. I see why Lazarus had to die. I see why his sisters had to weep and mourn. Because God was going to get glory and a bunch of people were going to get faith. So what happens here? Well, one of the things we see from the story about suffering not being futile is that our suffering is not ultimate. Healing is. Suffering isn't the end of the story. Healing's the end of the story. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's a really strange verse, no? Jesus loved them so much, so he stayed put. Jesus was like, oh, I'm so feeling for them. I'm going to stay where I am and hang out a little longer. Like, it's just so strange. It's not what you'd expect. You'd expect Jesus loved them, so he dropped everything and went to them. Jesus loved them, so he stayed. I've preached this text before a number of years ago, and the week leading up to preaching this text, our whole family had the stomach flu, our, stomach flu, our whole household. And as I lay beside the toilet that week, I prayed a prayer, not the sinner's prayer. I prayed the prayer that goes, take me now or heal me now. Just don't wait. But of course, fresh in my mind, because I was about to preach this sermon, was the fact that Jesus had great love and waited two more days. No! In these moments, right, we think that suffering's futile And suffering will never be resolved. But Jesus assures us that suffering is neither futile nor final. Jesus is the great physician who came for the sick in the midst of the sickness. He came so he could bind up the wounds that were open and hurting. He came so that he could bring healing into the situations 
Yes, sickness exists, suffering happens, but it's not final. Healing is. Secondly, we identify with Christ in our suffering. If God doesn't respond right away, we wonder what's going on. We wonder what's going on because we don't like suffering and we don't like waiting. But we follow a Savior who took a long road to the cross and was crucified on that cross. And so it is a little bit puzzling sometimes that we're perplexed by a suffering road when we follow a crucified Savior. Charles Spurgeon has a word of encouragement. Maybe you can hold it with you for when that day of suffering comes. Or if you are in that place right now, may it be a balm to your soul. He said, Believer, lay hold of this thought in all times of agony. Let the thought of Jesus, Jesus strengthen you as you follow in his steps. Find a sweet support in his sympathy and remember that. To suffer is an honorable thing. To suffer for Christ is glory. The apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to do this. Just so far as the Lord should give us grace to suffer for Christ, to suffer with Christ, just so far does he honor us. The jewels of a Christian are his afflictions. The regalia of the kings whom God hath anointed are their troubles, their sorrows, and their griefs. Let us not therefore shun being honored. Let us not turn aside from being exalted. Grief exalts us. And trouble lifts us up. If we suffer, we shall also reign with God. See, it's in our sufferings that we identify with Christ. The next time you go through a trial or as you go through it right now, consider Christ and all that he accomplished for you through his sufferings. Think about those things. Or be like the Apostle Paul and boast in your weakness, boast in your sufferings so that Christ's majesty and glory could be evidenced through that posture. See, we identify with Christ in our sufferings. Don't turn away the jewels of the Christian life, which are our sufferings for Christ. Thirdly, when Jesus ministers to us in our suffering, he gets glory and we get greater faith. I said this already, but we see it um, unpacked again in verses 11 and following. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. So they're going to go into a place where there's people, religious leaders, that want to kill Jesus. So for him to get to Lazarus is a dangerous thing. So he's saying here, Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to go wake him. And his disciples are like, well, if he's just resting, if he's just napping, like, let's not put ourselves in, like, harm's way. But they miss the point. They don't really see what Jesus is talking about. Jesus goes on and makes it really clear in verse 13. Now, Jesus spoke, had spoken of his death, but they thought it, he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And then listen to this. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Why is he glad? So that you may believe. But let us go to him. Jesus tells them flat out, Lazarus has died. And why is he glad he wasn't there? So they could believe. The miracle that is going to take place will reveal the power and glory of God and deepen their faith. These things happen in the sufferings of Lazarus and those who loved him. God would get glory and they would get a deeper faith. 
Jesus is about to do two things. Tell them that he's the resurrection and the life and show them that he is by resurrecting Lazarus, raising him from the grave. That's what we call a teachable moment. Jesus was going to have a teachable moment with him, with all these people, and it was going to lead to greater faith for them. I'm the resurrection and the life. Lazarus, come out of the tomb. Right? They're going to remember that. And it's going to deepen their faith. And he has a purpose. And Jesus is going to use that. So why is all of this happening? So God gets glory and they get godly growth. And you and me as well. Now when Jesus came, verse 17, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. They sent a messenger to Jesus, which took a day. Lazarus likely died while the messenger was on his way to Jesus. Jesus stayed for two more days and made the trip to Bethany, which took another day. So we only arrived to the tomb four days after Lazarus had been placed there. This ensured that everyone would see that Lazarus had been brought back to life. We can't think with today's medical uh, community in mind or abilities in mind. We have to think first century and what was, what, what's happening here in the context and what was appropriate in that time, what took place then. Because it was quite common then that they would assume someone had died and wrapped them in burial cloth only for the person inside to begin moving and talking. Imagine how freaky that would be. Not only are you on your deathbed and that's bad enough, but they thought you died and you wake, wake up and you've been bound in linen strips and you're like, like you're just trying to like make noises and like move your fingers a little bit. Like you, you never died. It actually happened. It wasn't all that infrequent that such a thing would take place. One pastor from England not that long ago mentioned this in a sermon, and afterwards an elderly woman came up to him and said, hey, that happened to my grandfather. See, we're not that, that many generations away from like this sort of thing happened. We thought he was dead, but he wasn't. So had Jesus gone right away, Lazarus still would have been dead, yes, but the skeptics in the crowd would have just said, well, Lazarus wasn't really dead. So Jesus waited for days so that he would get glory as he performed this miracle and they would get greater faith. But I want to take another pause here and look at uh, Mary and Martha in this story and the fact that here they are weeping, here they are mourning, here they are sad, here they are calling for Jesus to come quickly, come quickly. And the second point is about trusting Jesus with a heavy heart. I didn't quite know how to phrase this first sub-point, but I, I put it this way. Submission and sorrow hope and heartbreak, they're not mutually exclusive. Sometimes we want to pit them against each other. Well, I can't submit to God and feel really real sorrow. Like, what's going on? Or, I'm heartbroken. How can I have hope? We don't have to pit those things together. Martha here and Mary here show us that. Here's Martha, verse 18. Bethany was near to Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. There is this raw emotion in Martha, in what she says here. Through her grief, she cries to Jesus, If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus, what are you doing? Why have you done this? Why has it gone this way? Couldn't you have done something different? What are you doing, Jesus? She's bringing that to him, this question and this pain. And like, why didn't you? But she catches herself. 
But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She goes on in verse 27 to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Instead of going down that road of blame and anger towards Jesus, she rightly puts her faith in him. So she's mourning, she's hurting, she's got raw emotion, yes. And at the same time, she's recognizing her place, who Jesus is, and submits herself to his will all at once. Let's look at Mary, same thing, verse 28. When she had said this, when Martha had said that Jesus had come, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were there, uh, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to Jesus, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Disappointment. She had, he hadn't come sooner. She shares the same sentiment as Martha did. She's disappointed with Jesus. But what else did she do? It all started when she fell at his feet and declared, if you had been here. That's not a posture of hostility, is it? It's a posture, yes, of worship in the midst of a broken heart, not of hostility or pride or bitterness. She's full of questions. She's full of pain, full of mourning, but still with that posture of one who trusts and worships Jesus. See, what Mary and Martha show us is that sorrow and submission, hope and heartache, both exist at times in our lives as followers of Jesus. We can trust in the sovereignty of God, and trust in it does not negate pain and sorrow and a heart full of questions. Sometimes we think, oh, I can't really be full of questions. I can't really feel that this is awful because then I'm not having enough faith in Jesus or something. And so we think, feel like we need to squash just this raw pain and emotion. We don't need to do that. And at the same time, pain and sorrow does not negate God's sovereignty and goodness. He is still good. He is still faithful. He is still righteous. He is still all of these things that we know to be true. These do not need to be pitted against each other. That's why Martha confesses, I know that whatever you ask, God will give you, and why Mary falls at the feet of Jesus. So look, there are times when we will have heavy hearts, of course. For some of us, we're living there right now. Fall at the feet of Jesus. Bring your hurt to him. Let me give you a, an even better reason why to do such a thing. And that's the second subpoint because Jesus grieves with us. Verse 34, he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Look, he's not weeping because things are hopeless. I'm going to give you a spoiler, a couple spoilers. The Titanic sank in the end. Um, the other spoiler is that uh, he's, she, he's about to raise Lazarus from the grave. Like, that's happening. So why is he weeping? Things aren't hopeless. Things are actually full of hope. He's weeping because this is a friend that he loves dearly. He's weeping because there are people that he loves dearly who are weeping. And so he sits in it with them and weeps. I, I'm still a pretty new pastor and when you're a pastor of like young adults and worship, for example, you don't go to the hospital that often where a, an older saint has lost a spouse. So th those kinds of things are, are relatively new to me. And um, 
I've had a couple of occasions where here I'm sitting with a senior who loves the Lord and is experiencing some grief that I haven't, exp- I haven't lost a spouse. And I feel woefully inadequate going into a hospital room or going to their home for a visit to console and to comfort. And I've been there. And as I've been there, I've prayed prayers like, Lord, give me like a verse. Please give me like the perfect verse right now that I can read that will bring such comfort. Give me like some really good pastor wisdom, Lord. Like give me that nugget that like pastors are supposed to say right now. I don't remember it from any of my classes. What's the thing I say? And I've prayed that in, in those moments and like nothing comes. <laughs> Once in a while something does. And I've left those times thinking like, I am useless. Aren't I? So uh, someone else needs to do this. An older guy like Gary needs to do this, you know? <laughs> And then afterwards, talking with that person and them going, thank you for just coming and sitting with me. Thanks for just being in the room. And I go, oh, okay. I mean, I just showed up and cried a little bit too. I'm good at crying. You, you all know that. Isn't, that's what Jesus does here. Because he loves. So before I get to, yeah, I can fix this. He gets to, let me sit in this with you and weep tears because you're weeping tears. Like, isn't that such a good thing? Do we not have such a great Savior? He's not, like, he's not heartless. He's not void of emotion that, like, get over it. You got, have more faith. What are you weeping and crying and sitting in a heap there for? Get out of your bed. Stop being so discouraged. He's not, he, it's like he comes in close and just, let me just share in the grief right now. I'm going to weep some tears. It's not hopeless. I can fix, I will fix, but I'm going to sit here too with you. Jesus weeps not because things are hopeless, but because he loves you deeply. That's the kind of savior to fall at the feet of when times are hard. Thirdly, death is not dying. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's thinking, okay, I know the time is coming, right? When all will be resurrected. Re- resurrection life will take place at the last days. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection is coming right now. Resurrection is here. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. When Emily and I were in Vancouver, we were part of some church planting efforts there around 2009. And there was a, a woman, a young woman named Rachel Barkey, who had a really big impact on a lot of people there, specifically a lot of the younger women in some of the church plants in, in Vancouver. Um, after four and a half years of vigilantly fighting breast cancer, the 37-year-old wife and mother of two was diagnosed with terminal cancer. But for Rachel, the essence of life was found in her relationship with God through Jesus. And that's why Rachel was convinced that death is not dying. One of the church plants that we were a part of put on an event. It was supposed to just be like a little women's event. The title of Rachel, as terminal cancer, 37 years old, the title of her talk and the event was Death is Not Dying. They were hoping 40 women would show up. Well, 600 women showed up to hear Rachel in her 30s dying of cancer, get up and essentially say this. 
cancer doesn't define me. Neither does being a wife or a mother. All these things are part of who I am, but they don't define me. What defines me is my relationship with Jesus. And when what defines you is your relationship with Jesus, death isn't dying. Death isn't dying when Jesus is what defines you. See, firstly, death is not the end, but only the beginning of our eternal joy. Jesus comes along and says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth of seven I am statements in John's gospel. Why are these I am statements such a big deal? Well, because Moses, when he wanted to know God's name, asked in Exodus chapter 3, what's his name? What's your name, God? If people ask me, what do I tell them? And he says, I am, or I am who I am. And so God became known as I am. Well, now Jesus comes along, and what what does John want to accomplish in John's gospel? He wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God, and through him we can have eternal life. And so seven times John makes it really clear that Jesus is the Son of God by showing these I am statements. Jesus is identifying with God. And so he comes along here and says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm eternal life. I'm where death is not dying. And Jesus doesn't say, I have resurrection power, or I do resurrections, or I resurrect people, or I will be resurrected. He could have said any of those things and they would have been accurate. Instead, he says the most accurate statement of all, I am the resurrection. And you need to hear that. Jesus is the resurrection. He is the only one who has the power of resurrection. Only those in Christ can know resurrection. He's the only hope. He's the author of life. He's the essence of life. And in him, death is not the end, but only the beginning of our eternal joy. It's in Christ where death is not dying. It's only the beginning of eternal joy. Secondly, I need to point this out. It's important. Death brought rage to Jesus. Our English translation doesn't do justice to this section. It says this, verse 33, When Jesus saw her, that's Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Someone could play us a beautiful song and we could say, that was very moving, right? Or somebody could tell us something that's not, not a very good thing and be like, I'm, I'm troubled by that. Like the, the English language doesn't do justice to what Jesus was thinking, feeling, and doing. Because the Greek translation here of these words is to quake with rage. It means to roar or snort with anger like an animal, like a lion, like a bull. He, Jesus here is bellowing with anger as he came to the tomb. Nostrils flared with fury and might mean he was yelling with anger. When he saw Mary and everybody weeping, he was filled with rage. Jesus is agitated with death. That's why he's enraged. Jesus is looking at these people that he loves mourning over death. Jesus is looking at the collateral damage of sin and death and has had enough. Jesus is filled with rage at death. This was never how it was supposed to be. He's mad at death. He's mad at the tomb. And he left heaven for earth to do something about it. 
to bear the weight of our sins on the cross, to rise on the third day, defeating the two things that have their grip on us apart from Christ, sin and death. He bore our sins on the cross and he came out of the tomb, resurrected to new life, and both of those things are offered to us through that finished work of Jesus Christ. But in the midst of death, Before the cross, he is just enraged by the collateral damage that sin and death brought. And that's why he came. And that's why he would go to the cross. Romans 6 says it, the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we get is a rightful payday for our sin, death. We get what's owed. We get what's deserved. We get a good salary for what we give for sin. The wage for sin is death. We earn death. But the gift of God is is eternal life. So in the midst of getting the pay that we deserve for our sin, which is death, God steps in with grace and gives us a free gift through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's a gift to us, which is really, I'm talking about the third subpoint here. Jesus turns death into resurrection. Jesus says, I'm going to turn this death into a resurrection. I'm going to bring out of this death something good. I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus takes death and brings life, and there is no life apart from him, no eternal life apart from Jesus. Jesus turns death into resurrection. For some of us who doubt, we have a question right about now. Is this all there is? I think that this is all there is. Maybe this is all that there is. There is no afterlife. I don't need to worry. I don't need to reconcile with God. I I don't need Jesus because this is all there is. This is a really critical question. Every Christian has asked it. Is this life all there is or is there more? You don't become a Christian without answering the question that, yes, there is more and that Jesus is the way. But there are many people in our city asking the question, is this life all there is? And how we answer that question has massive ramifications. If this life is all there is, our lives are insignificant and it doesn't matter what we do with them. But I would say deep down, we know that our lives matter. We know that life matters. We know that our lives matter. Deep down, we know that how we live matters. And even though I think we all know that deep down, this is not all there is. Well, Jesus answers the question of, is this life all there is? And says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the question that Jesus asks. Do you believe that I am? It is the question. It indicates true faith in Jesus or it indicates disbelief. And our response should be the same as Martha's beautiful response to Jesus in verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Well, now let's see Jesus turn death into resurrection. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha and the the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. I love this. This It's just very clean English language again. Um, Lord, there will be an odor if we roll the stone away. A a stench of death. You know, like it's it's it's, it's quite more significant than there will be an odor. Like your shoes smell a little bit. Like it's far greater. I actually like the King James version on this. I think I've only said that twice in my life, but I love the King James version on this where the King James version says, he stinketh. <laughs> like, Lord, he stinketh. Like, really? Should we? So let me just, 
I think you all know this. Like, men in general stinketh. Like, a man who hasn't bathed for one day stinketh. A man who hasn't gotten out of bed for four days, like, he stinketh. A dead man in a tomb for four days, like, oh, yeah. Like, he stinketh. But the fact that at, at this point, when Jesus is about to roll the stone and they're telling him it'll smell, they have no clue whatsoever what's about to happen. You can just hear the crowd that's gathered and they're saying to each other, what's he doing? Why is he walking up to the tomb? Why would he want us to roll away the stone? He should have come earlier if he wanted to say his goodbyes. Can you believe this? He's late. Lazarus is dead. Jesus, in verse 40, said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Verse 45, and many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Jesus did what no one saw coming. He brought a dead man back to life. And like I said at the beginning of the sermon, that is very, very good news for you and me. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You and I were in the tomb. And Jesus came and said, Unbind, come out. And unbind him. Come out. Unbind her. She was dead, but will be made alive out of sheer grace. It's by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Take off those burial clothes and unbind him. Jesus is resurrection. Finally, as we close, Jesus is the hero. Like, it was the point of the story that God would get glory and it's the point of all of our faith stories. Like we show stories of faith here every time people become ministry partners at Central and become, get baptized. We show f stories of faith. And sure, they're, they're, they're threads of from, from your lives and they're, they're telling, but what do they say? There's this common thread and there's actually a common hero every single time. Jesus is the hero. I was lost. This horrible thing happened. I was doing this kind of stuff. And then Jesus invaded my life. And then Jesus told me, to live and to come out, to receive salvation. Jesus is the hero of those stories. And notice what happened here. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It just says in verse 44, the man who had died came out. It doesn't even name Lazarus at this point because it's just the man. It, it, he's, just, he's just the illustration. And Jesus is the point. See, Lazarus was brought back to life and there's no mention of what Lazarus did. Lazarus was brought back to life, and there's no mention of what he said. The focus is on Jesus, not Lazarus. Matt Smethers said, Abraham was a liar. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Peter was a denier. Thomas was a doubter. Lazarus was dead. <laughs> and Jesus saves. 
What's our part in this story this morning? Liar, murderer, adulterer, denier, doubter, dead. What's Jesus' part in the story? Savior. Jesus brings dead people to life. It's not those who are brought back to life that are the heroes. Jesus is. Jesus heals people, and it's not those who have been healed by Jesus who are the heroes. Jesus is. Jesus takes away the sins of those who sincerely repent. Jesus is the hero. God offers salvation to those who believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the hero. This Sunday, may we give God the glory that he is due. May we worship Jesus rightly. May we look to him today and live. May we look to him for eternal life. And may we leave this place today proclaiming that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, believing that he brings the dead to life, you and me and all who would believe. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for making dead things live. Sounds like an episode of The Walking Dead. Sounds like a zombie apocalypse. Lord, it sounds crazy. But you take the dead things and you make them live. You accomplish what we can't accomplish. You've accomplished what we can't accomplish. Sins dealt with, death dealt with. We can't do that on our own. We need a savior. And the story this morning of Lazarus being raised by your power with your love. God, we know that you can do that in dead hearts. You've done it in ours. Lord, I pray for those this morning who have never turned to your resurrection life. Lord, that we would turn to you because you've already accomplished on the cross what we couldn't. That we would turn to you because you are the great lover of our souls. That we would turn to you because, Jesus, you sought us to save us. Thank you, Lord, that you are the resurrection and the life. May we live in light of that. Live to the fullest. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.